0: The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, dot com, and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
1: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by YouTube. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
2: Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we're gonna be talking about the latest developments in the COVID pandemic and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. I'm delighted to be joined by the nation's leading infectious disease expert and President Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, a very warm welcome back to Washington Post Live.
0: Thank you very much, Francis. Good to be with you.
2: Well, latest developments just go there right away. I know there's never a dull moment in your life. Um, We've had lab results, and we should say they're lab results, they're preprints um, out of South Africa, and also from the BioNTech and Pfizer companies, suggesting that the new variant, Omicron, has the ability, but not the complete ability, to evade uh, some of the virus fighting antibodies. So broadly speaking, Is this a thumbs up moment for you or a thumbs down
0: moment? What do we make of this? You know, I think it's a way that it's, it's a moment in which we need to look at the preliminary data and say that it is not really very bad news and could be reasonably good news. And let me explain what I mean. When you look at the antibodies that were tested against this new virus variant, the Omicron, the two shots that you get from an mRNA vaccine The degree of protection has gone down considerably. That's the sobering news. The somewhat encouraging news, and perhaps even good news, is that when you look at the level of protection, at least from a laboratory parameter, that you get when you get a third shot boost, and even some protection that you may get against severe disease with just two shots, it really is quite good. In fact, the booster shot could be the answer to the challenge that we're facing with the Omicron. But again, these are preliminary laboratory data which just point very strongly in the direction of a diminution with the standard vaccine, but a reconstitution back up to the level that we're much more comfortable with with boosters. So if ever there was a clarion call for people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated and those who are vaccinated fully to get boosted, The new challenge with the Omicron variant clearly is that.
2: Let me ask you a little bit more about those booster shots. Given what we know about waning immunity, how long would you expect the boosters to last against this new variant?
0: That's a very good question. And and to be perfectly honest, we don't know the answer. But what we are hoping for that is when you give sequential vaccinations of a particular vaccine regimen, It is entirely conceivable that looking at the degree of elevation of projected protection you get from the third shot, it is conceivable that not only will it go up and then maybe come down the way the second shot did, but you may be inducing a degree of what we call affinity maturation of the immune response, which is a complicated way of saying you broaden the breath and perhaps even the durability of protection. So I don't think we can say that it goes up and it's going to come down in six months. We're hoping, and I hope we're correct, that it goes up and it stays up much longer than just that six or seven or eight month duration that we've seen with the two shots when it starts to wane. The only way to determine that, Francis, is to just watch it over the next several months and see what happens.
2: So... One of the other things we've heard a lot about is the potential with these new mRNA vaccines to develop uh, variant specific shots, in this case, an Omicron specific shot. What's the likelihood, do you think, that we will need one? I think Pfizer said it could have one ready by March. Uh, And more important, almost what would the metrics for deciding that be? What would the regulatory process be to bring a a vaccine or a variant specific vaccine to market?
0: Well, uh, let's take each of those questions one at a time. The answer is we are well prepared in the in in the context of the pharmaceutical companies to be able to make variant-specific uh, vaccines in a very timely fashion. That's one of the real advantages, particularly of the mRNA platform, in that you can uh, have a great deal of flexibility in adjusting what the vaccine uh, immunogen is in the platform. So. That's the good news. We may not need it, but we are prepared for the eventuality that we might need it. And when I say need it, I mean a variant, in this case, Omicron-specific vaccine boost. It is conceivable that the boost against the original vaccine will get the levels of protection high enough that it will spill over into protection against the new variants. We know that that's a likelihood because remember, the original vaccine that we made was against the ancestral Wuhan strain. And yet, when you get a high degree of immune response, it spills over into alpha, beta, and delta, so that we know you don't absolutely need variant-specific boosts for new variants. We might, and if we do, we're well-prepared. And you're right. It will likely take until March before they get everything revved up to be able to be producing it in large amounts. You ask about the regulatory requirements. You know, I don't wanna step ahead of the FDA about what they would do, but I think in broad contextual terms, if the level of protection with the boosts against the original uh, uh, ancestral strain goes low enough and whatever that cutoff point is, that'll be up to the FDA whether that's below 50% or what have you, then it is likely we will need to at least look seriously at a variant specific boost. But I hope we don't need that. I hope we can continue to elevate the response by boosting with the original vaccine.
2: I'd like to ask you a little bit about our behavior, what we can do in the pandemic as we face these scientific uncertainties and learn a little bit more about data as we go ahead. What should we be doing? How should we be adjusting our behavior right now?
0: You know, there are some fundamental core principles that will not change regardless of what happens, regardless of whether we get a surge or not or a a new variant or not. And that is that we have at our disposal an extraordinarily effective and safe tool, and that is vaccines. So, A, if you're not vaccinated and are among the 60 million people in this country, who are eligible to be vaccinated, who have not yet gotten vaccinated, please, for your own safety, for that of your family, and for your communal responsibility of getting this outbreak under control, get vaccinated. If you have been fully vaccinated and you are eligible for a boost given the timing of your vaccination, by all means, get boosted. But it goes beyond vaccinations. There are fundamental core principles such as when you're dealing, right now we are in the middle of a Delta surge. We have 100,000 new cases yesterday. We have 1,000 or more deaths per day. And we have over 50,000 people in the hospital. Under those circumstances, what you need to do is to mitigate, namely, if you are in an indoor congregate setting, wear a mask, be prudent. You're going to be traveling likely for the holiday season. You get to an airport, you get to an indoor setting, where you don't know the vaccination status of the people around you, be prudent and wear a mask. And then, you know, there are also the possibility of there being therapies available reasonably soon so that if individuals get infected and you give them an oral therapy, you can prevent the progression to hospitalization. And we also have good monoclonal antibodies, namely treatments that you can give early in infection That would protect you from protection, uh, excuse me, from progression to severe disease. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal. We shouldn't feel in the sense that we're, we're, we're impotent in doing something about it. It's all within our own grasp. Get vaccinated, abide by the CDC recommendations. And if, in fact, you do get infected, there are ways to treat it.
2: You mentioned holiday travel, how concerned are you, given what you see is happening in Europe? And I have to say, I got back from London a couple of weeks ago, where the virus seemed to be on a rampage. How concerned are you about the next few months, given what we're seeing in in those parts of the world?
0: Well, obviously we have to be concerned when we see what's going on in uh, Europe, because often Europe uh, antedates and reflects what will happen to us. But we have some advantage because Europe pulled back a bit on their mitigation. They're not vaccinating their children to any great degree, whereas we are, and encouraging now that we have 28 million children in the cohort of 5 to 11 years old. That would be important in keeping the level of infection down in the community. But as you get deeper into winter and people will be spending more time indoors as opposed to outdoors, there'll be an uptick in travel during the upcoming holiday season. It's just to be prudent. Do the things that I mentioned just a moment ago about vaccination, about masking, and about mitigation. We're gonna be challenged, no doubt. We're already seeing that we're at 100,000 per day. And unless we really double down on what we're doing, we could see an increased spike that goes even higher than that as we get deeper into December and January.
2: And to be clear, those mitigation methods you're talking about you're advising them to the vaccinated. I'm hearing from so many vaccinated people who feel as if, you know, there may be some personal rewards for getting vaccinated, but they still face all these restrictions and measures.
0: Well, yes, that is just the reality of the situation. I mean, one thing that vaccinated people can feel comfortable, for example, let's take the holiday setting. You're with your family, you have grandparents and parents and children. When you get vaccinated and you have a vaccinated group and you are in an indoor setting, you can enjoy, as we have traditionally over the years, dinners and gatherings within the home with people who are vaccinated. And that's the reason why people should, if they invite people over their home, essentially ask and maybe require that people show evidence that they are vaccinated or give their honest and good faith word that they've been vaccinated. So vaccinated puts you in a much different position than the extreme vulnerability of people who are not vaccinated because all you have to do is look at the data and look at those areas of the country, those those states, those communities that are under vaccinated, there's no doubt they have a much higher degree of infection, a much higher degree of hospitalization and a much higher degree of death. The data are really quite obvious, they're incontrovertible. That's the reason why we, we essentially plead with people to get vaccinated. Let me ask you
2: about one of the broader mitigation methods, and that's travel bans, which have been so controversial since the outbreak of Omicron in South Africa. Are these kinds of mes- uh, methods warranted or are they just to sort of show strength uh, when something new happens like this?
0: Well, specifically what happened in South Africa and Southern Africa is that there was, like, within a day or two, was shown that we have a brand new, very troublesome variant in Omicron. And the reflex immediate situation is before we know what's going on, let's just shut down entry into the country from those regions till we get a better feel for what's going on. Now that we know more about it, and and by the way, we, we have to tip our hat to our South African... Colleagues who've been extraordinarily transparent, helpful, and collaborative with us in getting us real-time information. So I know I personally and members of my of our team feel the same way that we're we're really uh, it's unfortunate and we feel badly about the hardship that has been imposed upon those countries. And for that reason, we are looking on a daily basis to pull back on those travel bans as quickly as we possibly can.
2: At the same time, uh, in New York, we're seeing the, the mayor introduce a vaccine mandate, the first of its kind, for the private sector. Is this the kind of mitigation tool that you see in our future, in your professional
0: opinion? You know, Francis, we, no one likes to be mandating for people to do things that they might be hesitant to do. But quite frankly, you have to, when you're in the middle of what we call a historic experience, of the worst pandemic of a respiratory disease in the last hundred years, we have to put the communal responsibility ahead of individual preferences. So although no one, myself included, likes to be told what you have to do, sometimes if you don't come to the realization that it is good for yourself, for your family, and for the communal good, then mandates or requirements become necessary.
2: I am interested in the def- definition of fully vaccinated, particularly given what we're learning about the booster and the importance of it facing this new variant. Should we be changing the definition of fully vaccinated to include three doses, the booster included?
0: Well, you know, fully vaccinated is a technical term, Francis. It, it relates to the requirement of showing that you're vaccinated to be able to go into a a location, be it a college or a university or a workplace, to say, I am now officially within this category so I can proceed. I don't see that changing in the immediate future. But one thing is clear, that from a personal standpoint, optimal protection is with a booster. When that gets changed to be the official definition of fully vaccinated. I think that certainly is on the table and is going to be seriously considered. But for the immediate future, I think it's going to stay with the two dose of an mRNA and a single dose of J&J to be the official definition for regulatory purposes and for purposes of admission or not into certain venues. It's going to stay that way for a while. Despite the fact
2: that we're seeing from Omicron that people who are vaccinated seem to be able to spread the infection. I spoke just this week with the man from Minnesota who was one of the earlier uh, people to uh, to, uh, um, get the uh, Omicron variant.
0: Well, yes, and that's the reason why I said literally every day we evaluate that. And I think that is clearly on the table and will likely occur. I just can't give you a day or a date when that will happen. This gets back to
2: messaging. How do you continue to message the urgency with the continuing evolution of this pandemic?
0: Well, that is obviously a problem. Anybody who is following what is going on uh, comes to a pretty obvious realization that this is getting to the point where the messaging, as intensive as it is, uh, is something that might require messaging plus requirements. Because we do have still 60 million people who are eligible to be vaccinated who are not being vaccinated. Now that we have the Omicron variant threatening us, I hope that triggers or spurs people to reconsider their recalcitrance to getting vaccinated. I do hope so. Also, we're going to continue to get trusted messages to get people to appreciate why it's important to get vaccinated. Unfortunately, in this country, we have a decision to get or not get vaccinated often splits on ideologic lines, which is really terribly unfortunate that there should never be ideological differences in what public health pathway you follow. The public health pathway should be common and consistent for everyone. Because there's only one proper way to do it, and that is to protect yourself, your family, and your community. So the messaging is not going to be easy, Francis, and it isn't, as you well know.
2: You speak so powerfully about the importance of protecting the common good. Um, The booster issue has been controversial globally. The WHO has pushed back against the notion of wealthy countries like the U.S., Um, giving boosters when much of the world remains unvaccinated. The U.S. has been donating vaccines like no other country around the world. But what's missing here? What else needs to be done to make sure that we protect the rest of the world and spread the common good?
0: Well, you said very correctly, Francis, that the United States is very full aware that we do have a responsibility. I consider it a moral responsibility that if you have countries that don't have the resources or the capability of protecting themselves, that rich countries really have an obligation to low and middle income countries. And for that reason, we've done, as you said, the United States has done more than all other countries in the world combined to get vaccine doses to people in lower and middle income countries. It's a complicated issue because not only is it getting doses to them, it's helping them with the infrastructure and the capability to be able to distribute and implement those doses, because we have found ourselves In some circumstances, in a very paradoxical situation where some countries, because they don't have the capability of adequate and effective distribution into the arms of people with vaccines that have actually been turning down vaccines that have been offered to certain countries, particularly in Southern Africa, we've got to overcome that. We've got to not only have the doses to give them, but we've got to help them to be able to get adequate and effective distribution of those doses.
2: So before we leave vaccines, I want to ask one broad question about our vaccine ambitions. Some scientists have been calling for a broader, a broader spectrum vaccine for the coronaviruses. We've had the previous SARS, we've had MERS, and now we have this outbreak. What's the possibility of creating a massive national investment in some sort of broader universal vaccine that could tackle these issues for us?
0: Well, that's certainly the highest priority, certainly of the institute that I direct, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, where we have dramatically increased the resources specifically going to a pan-coronavirus vaccine. But before you get there, you want a pan-SARS-CoV-2 vaccine to get all the variants. Let's take one step at a time, and then ultimately a pan-coronavirus vaccine. I think what people don't fully appreciate is that there are fundamental scientific challenges before you can actually make a full court press on this. It isn't as if you have a clear pathway to a product and all you need to do is to dump more resources into it. We are putting substantial resources into it, but there are certain fundamental scientific, I wouldn't say roadblocks, but scientific issues that need to be addressed. Once you get beyond them, and we have some of our best scientists working on that right now, then hopefully we'll have a really clear uh, clear and rapid pathway to this universal coronavirus vaccine. We certainly are making it a high priority.
2: This has been a long two years, and my colleagues uh, Ashley Parker and Josh Dorsey recently reported that President Trump concealed a positive test for a week while he was traveling around. How surprised were you to learn that?
0: Well, I I can't evaluate my surprise or not, Francis. I was certainly uh, concerned about that. You know, I don't I don't make statements about individual people's actions, but I can generalize it and say that it is absolutely important when people who know the status of their COVID-19 and know that they are infected to do whatever they can. One to get care for themselves, to, obviously but also to protect others from being infected by you. And that's the reason why the CDC has that strong recommendation that when you do find out you're COVID-19 infected or SARS-CoV-2 infected, that you do whatever it takes to protect others from being infected by you, namely by quarantining and isolating yourself.
2: Dr. Fauci, I'd like to finish with one question about your own personal experience over these past two years. Every public health measure is controversial, but nothing has been politicized in the way this pandemic has. It's led to threats against you and your family members. How have you dealt with that in a day-to-day manner? How do you keep going and get inspired to do the work you're doing?
0: Well, Francis, what I do is what I've done throughout my entire professional career of 40 years, almost 40 years in my job as director of the Institute. We get faced with challenges of emerging infections, be they HIV, which we still are in a great challenge with, Ebola, Zika, pandemic, flu, and now the extraordinary challenge of COVID-19 is that I focus very intensively, like a laser, on what my job is, what the goals are. And the goals are clear, to use the scientific enterprise, which is part of what I do, to be able to protect and safeguard the health of the American public. Everything else, all that political stuff, that nonsense, that noise of threats, that divisiveness, that's all a lot of noise. If I let myself get distracted by that, I don't think I could do my job as efficiently as I do, which I think I do. So I focus on my goal, and my goal is my responsibility to the American public. And when I focus on that, everything is really secondary, to a great degree, secondary. Dr. Anthony
2: Fauci, we're very grateful for your focus on that common goal, the common good, and the scientific enterprise. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you very much, Francis. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm sorry that's all we have time for with Dr. Fauci. I'll be back in a few minutes with two school superintendents to talk about the challenges faced in their institutions.
3: The following segment was produced and
2: paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
1: Hello, I'm Elise Labatt of American University and today we're talking about the importance of finding authoritative information about COVID online. Not only is the nature of the pandemic constantly changing, but the politicization of issues surrounding COVID and the spread of disinformation has fueled public anxiety, and affects how we're coping. To talk about the challenge online media platforms face in moderating healthcare content for billions of users throughout this period of rapidly unfolding new information about the pandemic itself, I'm joined by Dr. Garth Graham. He's the Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnerships for YouTube. Garth, it's great to have you. Thank you
4: for having me, Elise.
1: Well, let's start by the sheer challenge that you're facing. You're overseeing health content on a platform that has some two billion monthly users, more than about 500 hours of video uploaded every minute, and every day we're learning new information. Take the Omicron variant, for example. This must be a huge challenge to make sure that misinformation isn't spreading on the platform. Talk to us a little bit about how you're navigating that challenge.
4: Sure. You know, it's, um, Information is a determinant of health. It's one of those many factors that impact health outcomes. And so it's important that quality information be a part of you know, everyone's regular life. Um, public health has kind of always understood the importance of good quality information, but you know, as we all know, the stakes have changed with information. And, and as you mentioned, some of the challenges and the opportunities are really there. We're able to reach so many people with good health information and educate individuals that that opportunity to get it right is so critical. So we, of course, um, you know, have a huge emphasis on misinformation and tackling misinformation. We removed more than one million videos from, of COVID misinformation from our platform. We've developed policies to detect and remove um, you know, misinformation related to COVID, but also misinformation related to vaccines overall. We broaden those policies given the importance of vaccines in public health and in healthcare um, in general. Um, we need to also be able to reach people with the right kinds of, of good quality health information. So we work with the CDC, the World Health Organization, the National Health Service in the UK, um, the American College of Physicians here domestically, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and a whole bunch of other organizations that help bring quality health information um, to users at scale using um, our platform as you're
1: so I'm particularly interested in what you said about information being a determinant of health. How does that impact how you think about YouTube's role in public health, specifically um, as we get into this next phase of the pandemic?
4: Yeah, I know this, I've been in um, healthcare and uh, public health a long time. And we need to rethink about how public health and clinicians in general engage platforms like ours to effectively communicate with people when they're looking for questions. And again, to kind of meet People as part of their overall journey. We need to be a part of the patient journey, a part of, um, of information seeking and make sure that we're uh, meeting people where they are. You know, I often say you know, gone are the days when people were looking for flyers and billboards to get health information or in you know, printed pieces of paper. People are looking for it um, in the palm of their hands and their phone when they look up um, information in general. So we have to be an active part of the patient journey, active part of um, the lives that people in community. You know, you know, you spend maybe an hour or two hours or even three hours in a doctor's office in a healthcare setting, but you spend all those other thousands of hours out in the world interacting, um, and that's how, that's how we want to be a part of that. I think public health in general, we want to meet people where they are and give them, uh, making sure they're getting good quality health information and making sure that we're tackling issues around misinformation um, as well.
1: So. You know, clearly this evolves. You're continuing to tweak as you go. So, talk to us about what you've found to be the best practices and lessons learned from the experience so far. We're you know kind of uh, almost two years into the pandemic. So, shepherding YouTube's response to the pandemic, what do you think needs works well, and and where do you think you can make some tweaks?
4: Yeah, you know, one of the things we learned was, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, being proactive and tackling issues around uh, misinformation. Um, but also, we have to think about how we reach people, like I said, with good quality um, health information. And so how do you make that information both culturally relevant, you know, tackling issues around health literacy and meeting people where they are? And so, you know, we did a number of things. We have uh, Dr. Fauci as a part of the program um, later on um, uh, today. And, you know, we worked with Dr. Fauci and paid with people like Trevor Noah. Um, we worked with Dr Fauci and played with people like the rapper Fat Joe to make sure we're reaching um, the X community. Um, we made sure we put CDC officers um, with all kinds of interesting creators to reach various segments um, um, of the world. We did this through the U.S. We did this globally in places like Brazil, we did this in Japan, and um, we did this in the U.K. and all kinds of different places across the world. And so reaching people with culturally relevant Um, information that is pertinent to their lives um, in places in which um, they would be looking for information in general, I think is an important part of not just the YouTube journey, but an important part of public health journey overall. And I think um, lesson learned for how we continue to reach people with health information in general post-COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I think that cultural context and that accessibility is so important because clearly online media platforms have an important role, not just working with these public health organizations to inform us and answer our questions, but also keeping us connected and feeling happy and healthy as people as we navigate this pandemic. Dr. Garth Graham, Director and Global Head of Healthcare and Public Health Partnerships at YouTube, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now, back to Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back. For those just joining us, I'm Francis Steed Sellers from the Washington Post. My next guests are two school superintendents, Dr. Deborah Duardo from Los Angeles County and Dr. Gustavo Balderas from the Edmonds School District in Washington State. A very warm welcome to you both.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Francis.
2: Dr. Duardo, let me start with you. Uh, Unfortunately, the Omicron has injected a new sense of urgency into our pandemic response. How are you preparing your district for what some experts are calling a new pandemic winter? So we actually have 80
5: school districts in LA County and we're working with all 80 school districts, almost 2 million children. And really what we're doing is making sure that all of our districts have accurate information. And we're working very closely with the Department of Public Health and ensuring that our districts have access to COVID testing, um, that they have all the information that they need, that they need, that they have the PPE equipment, masks, um, and that we're providing support to our districts and getting accurate information out to our communities.
2: Dr. Baldros, the school in your district had to close, I think, in October because of an outbreak. And I'm interested in this this very difficult juggle you're having to create between safety and also creating the transitions between remote and at-home learning. How are you doing that and how are you preparing for this difficult winter ahead?
3: Much like Dr. Daudlo, we are trying to just ramp up our mitigation efforts, but also it's ensuring that uh, that we uh, don't relax. I think people we're, we're in a third year of COVID, and not relaxing. I think that's a uh, that's a worry that that we have here in the edmonds School District, in the in the district, but also regionally. I think people are um, there's COVID fatigue, and, uh, and I'm very very fortunate that we have a vaccine now for our five through 11 year olds. But that's a school that we we had to close because of uh, the so many kids are being quarantined and so forth. So we had to close down and it was closed down off off the recommendation of our county office of health because of uh, the fact that, you know, it's we work so hand in hand and with them in terms of what we will do in the future as well. But uh, for the most part, just making sure that we don't relax and we continue our mitigation efforts throughout the entire school system and, uh, and, and and promote our vaccine efforts. I think Dr. Fauci said earlier, we're going to continue to do that. We have our, our clinics. We have uh, shot clinics every Sunday, it seems like, for the last month. And uh, we are working on having drive-through clinics for our, for our, our youngest learners here sometime this month as well.
2: So the problems are not only with the the immediate impact of infection in schools, Dr. Duardo, but also with teacher shortages and, and shortages of other employees, administrative staff and cleaning staff, among other people. How are you facing those sorts of challenges going ahead? I believe some school districts have had to go, and maybe not in your county, to four days a week.
5: Yeah, there's absolutely been challenges with shortage in staffing. I think overall, um, people are exhausted. People have been working nonstop since this pandemic began. Uh, people who could retire and, you know, were concerned about exposure or did retire. So we've been working very hard to make sure that we're getting as many people as possible that can serve as substitutes, working closely with our universities and colleges, uh, reaching out to retired teachers and administrators, uh, really working with everybody that we can to say that we need to um, get as many people as possible that are qualified um, to come into the profession and support us during this time of crisis. So we're working hard to make sure we're filling those shortages and also looking at future pathways to get as many people as possible looking into the teaching profession.
2: I'd love to follow up with you Dr Baldros. Have you come up with any successful strategies to either keep teachers in the schools at this difficult time or to bring in new ones to fill some of the spaces?
3: Much like Dr. Duad though, we're working with our uh, university partners to see what, uh, you know, trying to hire uh, as many people as we can, but we're in the same situation everybody else is in the metro area. So just trying to incentivize our, our, our staff and uh, trying to work with our, our partners to see what we can do to try and get more people into the field. But we're no different than any other private sector. That's also, when I go down the street, it seems like there's help wanted signs everywhere. So it, I think there's just a labor shortage, and we're in a public school system. We're a reflection of the greater uh, impact that COVID's had, and there's a, there's shortages everywhere. But uh, I, we do feel the impact, especially in, um, in in all sectors, from our paraprofessionals to our teachers, but also our transportation department and food services department. So it's a, in all sectors we're 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 struggling to to keep up with. Um, COVID fatigue, and also just lack of workers that are out there.
2: Yeah. So Dr. Eduardo, we heard from Dr. Fauci about how important mitigation strategies are. We also know they can be lightning rods. How are you managing that in Los Angeles County? Do you have masking regulations? Do you have a testing policy in place? And how do you manage the pushback you get over some of these things?
5: Yeah, we're using every mitigation uh, measure that we have in place. As I said, we've been working very closely with the Department of Mental Health um, in LA, I mean, the Department of Public Health as well as the Department of Mental Health. As we know, there's been a crisis in our children in terms of their well-being and mental health as well. Um, but we have measures in place. Um, all students are required, all, all everybody, students and adults, are required to wear masks when they're on our school campuses. Um, we have requirements for vaccinations Um, all of our employees are required to be vaccinated Uh, there are measures mandating students to be vaccinated Uh, we know that the best thing that we can do is ensure that everyone gets vaccinated uh, and we're testing regularly. So we pretty much on a weekly basis test about 600,000 students and adults. We run about 450 vaccination clinics uh, and we're using layered approaches, everything that we can do to make sure that we can keep our schools open, that we can keep our children, our teachers, all of our employees safe, protect this spread, and I have to say we've done an amazing job in terms of not spreading COVID within our schools. When we work with our Department of Public Health, we found that the spread in schools has been less than 1%, and in fact, schools are the safest place that a student can be um, to prevent the spread of this virus.
2: Your answer brings me exactly to a question about mental health. The U.S. Surgeon General just uh, yesterday, I think it was, Talked about the devastating impact that the pandemic has had on young children. So, Dr. Baldros, how are you coping with this enormous mental health challenge on top of the ongoing logistical and challenges you are facing?
3: So just not the students, but also the staff, correct? So mm-hmm. and, and also the broader community. I think everybody has experienced some level of trauma. I read a study, the McKenzie report, where I think 43% of kids uh, experienced some level of moderate depression during, uh, during during the peak time of COVID. And that's uh, where we try to hire additional social workers, trying to have wraparound services for kids and try and provide additional supports out in our communities to our families. And uh, again, just access to mental health supports is needed. And this is something that's uh, beyond COVID that we're gonna continue to do. It's just how do we provide more wraparound services for our students? Because we have kids basically six hours of the day, but the other hours of the day, they're not with us. So how do we make sure that we provide wraparound supports to our students? But especially right now during COVID, we are seeing um, a great strain in terms of uh, our students being traumatized by this. And we're seeing uh, some spikes in terms of the student behavior that we have not seen before.
2: Everybody cares about what's going on in schools. And we have had a lot of your mm-hmm. questions. I'd like to read one to you. It comes from Nancy Lesson who writes in and asks, what are the strategies for keeping students safe at lunchtime in school cafeterias as students eat unmasked? And maybe Dr. Duado, you could tell us what you're doing in Los Angeles County.
5: We're making sure that to the extent possible we have students eating outdoors whenever that's possible making sure that they're maintaining that six foot feet of distancing uh, making sure that um, we're reminding students that they should only have their masks off while uh, eating or drinking food uh, making sure that they're not sharing food that they're washing hands that all of our uh, environment, has been disinfected and clean, and just really following everything the Department of Public Health tells us that we need to do to ensure uh, the prevention of spreading this in our schools.
2: So one of the things that could potentially, uh, probably prevent spread is vaccinations. Uh, Dr. Baldurus, uh we've heard Dr. Fauci talk about the importance of vaccinations. Your schools require immunizations against many other diseases. Do you think the COVID vaccines should become a requirement for those children who are eligible
3: I absolutely do believe that this should be a requirement and like and, and get into the cycle so our kids uh, again we can come back to some level of not having to wear a mask in the future again this is a third year and and this is causing a trauma for kids I think what 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 I've found is kids have lost a lot of experiences during the last since March 2020 when we had to close down and and that and those ex- lost of experiences lost experiences, loss of connectivity with their friends, really physical connectivity, uh, maybe socially that were online and so forth, but it's caused that trauma and, and will continue. So I do wish that the vaccine would be mandated uh, and put it on a cycle like every other um, immunization that is required.
2: Your governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, Dr. Duado, has been one of the first to come out and say that he would back such a mandate in schools. How would you go about implementing that in L.A. County?
5: Well, it's not any different when you think about, we already have about 10 vaccinations that students are required to have in order to attend school and to keep everyone safe. So we have measures in place to make sure that we're reaching out to parents, providing information, making the vaccination process as convenient and easy as possible. You know, a big part of it is fighting inaccurate information that's out there. And so a lot of our work is reaching out to parents, via town halls, uh, through um, various measures to make sure that they're aware of what the vaccine is, how important it is to keep their children safe and healthy uh, and schools are used to this it's nothing new for us to make sure that we get all of our students vaccinated to keep everyone safe so it's really about working with parents working with our school communities making the vaccine accessible and available and breaking some of the myths and providing accurate information.
2: I'd love to follow up just quickly on that, Dr. Eduardo, because California has also been one of the places with a very powerful anti-vaccine mov- movement that predates uh, the COVID vaccines. How do you specifically counter this kind of misinformation among parents who are concerned about their children?
5: Yeah, there there is a strong group that are anti-vaxxers, um, but I'd say that The best that we can do is to continue to provide accurate information to continue to encourage our parents to talk to the experts to speak to their pediatricians to look at the science um, and to provide a forum where people can feel comfortable asking questions and getting information it's also talking to students and educating them so that they can also inform their parents Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done but I will say that the majority of parents are so excited about having this vaccine available, and you know, couldn't wait to get their child vaccinated uh, to make sure that they can continue to go to school and mostly to make sure that their child is safe and healthy.
2: Right. I talked to a young woman this week who was talking about her social life and her student life as as a, as a student at school, being online the whole time. And Dr. Baldros, I'd love to hear more about the kinds of issues. Parents share with you about the challenges their kids have faced learning remotely and then making this adjustment back to in school learning, which may also change from week to week.
3: Well, absolutely. So, in Washington State, we were one of the, uh, the last states to really reopen. So, we opened in a hybrid format in April. And this year, you know, we're, uh, we, we're about 93% of our kids are in person. And uh, we did stand up a remote academy as well, K 12. But uh, they, what I heard from parents is a lack of connectivity, which should be a utility in my in my perspective. It should be something that just required for us to really work on as a as a society to have access to Wi-Fi, um, effective Wi-Fi for families. But uh, that's one of the things I heard. We were able to adjust pretty quickly with our technology. But um, also what I heard, uh, this the screen time, and we were hearing that before COVID, the amount of screen time kids are on either their phones or laptops. And that, of course, you know, was a, was a saving grace for us in terms of having technology. But also, I think we need to rethink in terms of how much screen time our kids truly do have in the future. But, uh, but also, it's not the same as being in person. So one of the things is just making sure that uh, we continue to um, work on our recovery educational recovery for our kids because we know that there has been an impact, especially with our students most marginalized. There's been a tremendous impact for those kids compared to others. So continue to work through that. And it's going to be a multi-year solution to this. This is not going to be something that we we saw within a few months. This is something that's going to be ongoing in every system in the US.
2: We didn't invite this experiment upon us, but it's been one for the past few years. We've changed our lives dramatically. And I'd like to ask you both and maybe we can start with you, Dr. Eduardo about what you've learned during these last two years that you think could be used to improve public education going ahead.
5: Well, I think we've learned an incredible amount about technology and how technology can be used um, not to expect students to be in front of a computer all day long, but to support the instructional program in their classroom for smaller individualized uh, lessons um, and also for telehealth, you know, we talk about mental health and how important that is. And, and it's been stigmatized, but for some reason, when you have a counseling session online, we found that many of our parents and students were, were more willing to participate So continuing um, with technology, um, I always think it's incredibly important that we listen to our parents and student and that community voice. And I think because of this pandemic, we've had an opportunity to really bring in all of our stakeholders and to work together to see um, how we can improve outcomes for students. Um, And I just think that um, we all realize that this Um, pandemic didn't impact everybody in the same way. So really looking at everything through a lens of equity and making sure that every single one of our students has access to exactly what they need in order to do better. Um, There are some things that we don't wanna go back to the old normal. It's an opportunity for us to look at public education and to make gains. And I think technology and the community involvement is gonna make a huge impact on where we head in the future. For
2: our last question, Dr. Balros I'd love to you to answer that too. What do you think you're going to take from the pandemic that will adjust the way that the Edmonds School District uh, performs its public public, oof, sorry, public education in the future?
3: Absolutely, Francis. I, I think uh, to piggyback on Dr. Eduardo is our technology and how do we utilize technology to really access and, and have learning extensions using technology, different pathways using technology, but also the communication that we've experienced with parents and families using the technology that we do have. So from parent conferences and so forth to uh, learning extensions for kids. Again, as Dr. Duado mentioned, we don't want our kids in front of a computer all day, but how do we utilize the technology to provide uh, extended learning outside of our brick and mortars, outside of our school walls? So I think what technology has does for us is really create schools without walls. So basically kids can learn wherever, as long as they have the technology and the access to, to the internet, and uh, have access to the portal, is making sure that we use technology to really enhance what we're currently are doing in terms of the pathway work. But uh, the communication with families is it has been critical using technology. I see that always being present. And as also like Dr. Eduardo mentioned, you no, know, we can't go back to the new normal because our, the old normal, because the, the old normal wasn't great for all kids. So I think technology really um, is a game changer in terms of what we can do to really impact on um, all our students. But we need to make sure that we have the right access to that technology in terms of just outside of uh, the school walls with, and that really has to do with making sure we have appropriate internet uh, services to our families, but also the training that goes along with that. I think some of our families, you know, I have 130 languages here, so there's a lot of need in terms of translation. And a lot of families, um, again, need that extra support and we need to be able to provide that support for our families
2: what important messages those are about equity and access and ones we need to remember and work with going ahead. Dr. Balduras and Dr. Eduardo, many, many thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.
0: What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Choose Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit radiobeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30 day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.